Hey guys, Montel here, and thanks so much for tuning in to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Our guest today is a prison reform, addiction, and recovery advocate. She's a recovering addict herself who has been sober now for over nine years. She served time in New York and in Arkansas penitentiaries and stepped out of prison for the last time in 2013. She's been out of prison now for about seven years now, and in that time, just has become a full-time YouTuber with over 445,000 subscribers, and she received her bachelor's degree in correctional program support services. She uses her platform to help people better understand addiction and the U.S. prison system. She recently revealed on her YouTube channel that she uses medical cannabis to manage her insomnia, depression, anxiety, and PTSD, and has received an overwhelming amount of support from our audience for that. Jessica Kent, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I mean, I, I, I want to start at the last thing, but I want to start at the beginning. So let me start <laughs> last and go back. I can understand why people have, or some people would question how you could say that you're sober, but you use cannabis, but you're using cannabis under a doctor's guidance, are you not? I am. I have a medical marijuana card. And, but I mean, uh, but I don't want to want to give people at home the impression that, you know, uh, for them to think that there's something wrong with a person who is sober from opioids using cannabis, because we now know that, and there's been research that's been done that has proven that cannabis is an effective, you know, um, exit drug for opioid addiction. Is it not? It's not only an effective exit drug. It literally saved my life. You know, and for a really long time, I was on supervision, probation, and parole for years from 13 to 28. And they knew I had substance use disorder and they restricted cannabis. They wouldn't allow me to use it at all. And, you know, there comes a time where you realize my substance use disorder was not the only problem. The underlying issues was my mental health. And I wasn't treating that. I was literally white knuckling my addiction problem while completely ignoring my mental health. You know, and I understand that this path is not for everyone. I will never get up here and say everyone should use cannabis in recovery or otherwise. You know, this is my journey and this is my path. And, you know, it is doctor supervised. I completely believe that I am in recovery because now I'm treating my mental health. So it's just a unique journey for me. Um, PTSD and insomnia is no joke. And, having to do that for years and years by myself, it just got to be too much. So I'm beyond grateful for, for my path. Yeah. And I'm, I want to make sure people do understand whether you, 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 you're by there's some people are they're rolling their eyes right now who are tuned into mm -hmm. this podcast thinking, well, how can she be in recovery if she's really using cannabis? It's because the same reason why a person in recovery can use other prescribed medications that a doctor prescribes to them because they feel that that's the, what the person needs to get to their next level. And, you know, um, unfortunately, or I say, fortunately, you know, everybody in this country is entitled to a private conversation between themselves and their doctors. Um, and the fact that you share yours with the public, but, you know, I don't think anybody has a right to step in between you and your doctor and suggest what's better for you than your doctor would. So I back you hundred percent on that. Um, I want to go back for a minute because uh, your problems with addiction started very early in life, did they not? 
They did. I started with alcohol when I was 12. And Wait, you know, what, what was going on in your life that made you, were you just a, uh, you know, a, a, a rebellious little you know, tween that wanted to go <laughs> sneak in the kitchen and grab a bottle? Or um, what made you venture down that path to begin with? It's a really good question. Um, I grew up really poor. I grew up in Section 8 housing and we were evicted all the time. I'm going somewhere with that. Um, I would transition from school to school. Sometimes I would spend six months at one school, go to another school and go back to that first school. So I didn't have many friends. I was constantly bullied and picked on. And, you know, I was very reclusive and introverted naturally. So when I was 12, I met a girl in detention. That should have been my first red flag, but it's fine. And uh, I went over to her house after school and she gave me a beer and I thought, you know, it tasted absolutely disgusting, but I realized you're not awkward and shy and quiet. You're social and you feel good. So I thought that was kind of the answer to my issues with social anxiety and just being shy and introverted and standoffish with people. Um, alcohol addiction, you know, took hold really quickly and alcohol led to pills because I was actually jumped when I was 13. It cracked my ribs, smashed my face, and I was prescribed Oxycontin at 13 years old. You know, so alcohol transitioned into pills, pills transitioned into heroin, heroin transitioned into meth. So my substance use disorder was almost 10 years long. Wow, from age 12 to 22? Mm -hmm. Wow, and I mean, during that period of time, let's, let's go back again. You know, I find it a 13-year-old who's got an oxycodone um, addiction. Did anybody else recognize that or see that? Yeah. So I was getting in trouble in school all the time, cutting school, not showing up, getting in fights, um, doing anything that I could to get pills or cocaine, anything I could find really. So at 13, it's a little bit more challenging to facilitate your addiction. Um, it started then, but I wasn't an everyday user then at that time. I thought I just party. I have a good time. I have fun. I'm, I'm the Chris Farley of the party, you know? And, um, I didn't see that addiction was a problem. I didn't think alcohol was a problem at all. You know, everyone around me could drink and then not need it on like a Monday morning or so, you know, I needed it every day. And I didn't understand that, I would ever have a problem with addiction. To me, a drug addict, you know, I had this idea of what a drug addict was and it wasn't me. It was someone over there that maybe is homeless or struggling. And I'm not that person until I became that person. Right. Um, but in the beginning, we don't think that that's ever going to be us. So like 12, 13, 14, 15, you're still going to school, but you're still copping drugs wherever you can get them and you're drinking. Are you drinking every day? I am drinking Jack Daniels straight out of the bottle every day. And uh, that was something that probation couldn't test for, wasn't testing me for. I'm sure they could have. I'm not exactly sure. Wait, you were on probation that early in life? I was on probation from 13 to 28. Well, probation transitioned to parole, right? But, but 13, but wait, 13, what were you on probation for? What did you get in trouble for? My first uh, battle with that was PINS probation. That's called it's called PINS, but it's through the school. It's person in need of supervision. That was for cutting school, um, getting arrested for underage possession of alcohol and drinking and just kind of minor things. Um, so that was my first issue with probation. That turned into youth probation for fights. Uh, and then... What age are you there? 
14 or 15. And then I received my first felony at 17 for criminal sales of a controlled substance. I learned pretty early that if you sell drugs, you make money or get free drugs. That was really all I wanted to do. Have a little bit of money in my pocket. Like I said, I grew up really poor. Not that that's an excuse, but I justified that as a, as a teenager and free drugs. So ultimately I got arrested for that at 17. And then my final charges were at 21 or so for possession with intent to deliver meth, delivery of meth and simultaneous possession of drugs and a firearm. And I thought that was going to be my life. Well, wait a minute. I want to back up here. So 17, you get, you get your first felony. Were you, did you end up going to jail? Were you mm-hmm. did the court or how long did you spend in jail? <laughs> yes. So I was sentenced to one and a third to three. Um, but that wasn't the only you know issue that I had. I was constantly getting violated. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's okay. I was constantly getting violated for using drugs, drinking, curfew violations. These are all technical violations with parole. And I would serve six months here, 90 days here, 30 days here. And because these are really short stints, I also justified that. And I thought, it's not that big of a deal. What's six months? And which state were you getting uh, incarcerated in? That was in New York. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this put a lot of stress on my parents and my family. So at 18, my parents finally kicked me out. They just had enough. You know, I, I almost cost them their marriage. It was a really difficult time. But now as a mother, I look back and I see, you know, the stress that I put on my family and I see how hard that was for them. You know, they had no experience with addiction, no experience with law enforcement or any of the stuff that I was going through. They tried to put me in drug counseling All of the people in my life, though, my parents, probation and parole, drug and alcohol counseling, they all told me that abstinence was the only way. There is no other way for you. Treating your mental health, that's not even a conversation we have. It's stop using drugs. That's it. You know, cannabis, of course, was in that category. Um, So at 18, I, I moved out, was kicked out and struggled for a really long time. I started using heroin intravenously. So from 18 to about 22 or so, 21 or 22, I was addicted to a needle. Whatever I could put in that needle, I was addicted to. And is that when you transition from heroin to meth? Yes. So I... I No, I was going to say, you are a lucky, lucky person. I mean, because I'm looking at you, and you don't bear any of the physical scarring that math normally you know, does, especially young women. So, I mean, you're very, very blessed that way. But, I mean, the first time you tried meth, why were you transitioning from heroin to meth? Yeah. Um, so, that's a story. I um, went on the run from some charges in New York that I was innocent of. Some people got involved in a robbery. And even though I knew I was innocent, I know the criminal justice system. I can't fight that from county jail. They're going to force me to take a plea on charges I'm innocent of. So my rationale was go on the run, get a lawyer, detox, not in a jail cell, in a hotel room, and figure it out. So I did just that. I went on the run and found myself in Arkansas. And everyone there was doing meth. And at the time, I had about... Sorry, I had about three months sober from heroin and I felt so strong. I felt like I could take on the world. Heroin addiction is a monster and I've detoxed cold turkey probably two dozen times. 
So having done that for the last time in 2011, I thought I can take on anything. Look how strong I am. Unfortunately, I never treated my substance use disorder. So getting around people that were using meth was only a matter of time before I started using as well. And um, I don't know if you want to get into the details of the first time I used. It's pretty graphic, but intense. Sure. Um, Why not? Let, 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 let's, let's tell people. Okay. I, um, I bought $50 worth of meth, what I thought was $50 worth. Someone really hooked me up and gave me $150 worth. I had no idea how to use it, um, but I shot it intravenously. And I remember just clear as day, mixing that up and putting it in my arm and being afraid that other people in this really disgusting condemned trailer that I was hiding out in would know that I used meth. I've been here trying to get people sober and I'm now relapsing and I'm using. So I go to stand up and I try to clean up my mess as fast as I can so no one knows what I had just done. And I fell down. I couldn't see. My vision went completely out. I couldn't hear anything. All I heard was the wah-wahs. My ears were ringing as if a bomb had gone off and I had a concussion or something. It was really intense. I couldn't breathe and I started to hyperventilate. And after probably the longest 90 seconds of my life, a calming came over me and I was able to tell myself deep breaths, calm down, take a deep breath. I had to slow my heart rate somehow. I mean, I was I was having a full-blown panic attack. I thought I was going to die in this trailer. And after a while, my vision came back, my hearing came back, and I stood up. And instead of being afraid of what I had just done, instead of being afraid of dying, I thought it was the best thing in the world. And that is how sick I was. That's how sick addicts are. You know, we're not, we're not really afraid to die. We just want that feeling so that we feel good. And, you know, I share that on my YouTube channel so that people understand just how sick the disease of addiction really is. And from that point on, I chased that feeling for about six or seven months before I got arrested again. And you are what, 19 years old now? Are you 20? I'm 21 or 22, about to turn 22 or so, maybe 23. I'm sorry. And what did you get arrested for? This is in Arkansas now. This is now in Arkansas. I got arrested for possession with intent to distribute. So I had two ounces and they hit you with intent, delivery of meth and simultaneous possession of drugs and a firearm. Wow. And so you're staying in a court and the judge slams down the gavel and says guilty and sentenced you to how long? I was sentenced to five years, 15 suspended with 40 years exposure that's a lot to say that if I ever commit another felony again, I am going under the jail. Um, and I knew that that was going to happen. I was not surprised when I was arrested. You know, I kind of figured that's the lifestyle I was living. You know, I knew the risks. The only surprise I had was during that arrest, a couple of weeks after, I found out I was pregnant with my first daughter. And I was shocked and terrified. I mean, I can go to jail. I don't know how to do that pregnant. I don't know how to have a baby in prison. I mean, I was terrified every step of the way. So I- detoxing right now. At this point in time, you're starting your your forced detox because you're in prison, right? Forced detox. They don't give you any medication in Arkansas. And many states don't allow (laughs) you to have medication for detox, um, which is kind of- what started my need to fight for prison reform is not only myself suffering, but seeing all of the women come in and suffer and detox with nothing. And, you know, 
not even just the pain of detoxing. It's dangerous to do that with nothing. They're not even getting clean drinking water. So medicine is not even on the list of things that they're going to get. Um, but about three weeks into my jail sentence, I realized like something is wrong. Something's wrong with me. This is not just a regular detox. I've been here before. And that's when I was given a pregnancy test. So. And now you, I mean, just, just take, take me through what was, what was going through your mind, Jessica? You know, I mean, I, I can imagine I screwed up. I'm like, this is crazy. But to realize that you're going to be locked up for the next five years and going to be delivering a baby in eight and a half months in a cell. What went through your mind that day when they, when they looked, that nurse looked at you and said, did you know you were pregnant? Well, she was very busy that day and wanted me out of her office. And she just said, oh, that's what's wrong. You're pregnant. You can go back to the pod now. I was like, excuse me, <laughs> uh, you, you have the wrong one. Like I'm not pregnant. So you better check that again. And she's like, okay, crazy. Um, I was in complete denial. There's no way I'm pregnant. And I was interrogating her as if she had something to do with that. Um, but the only way that I knew how to deal with it for a couple of months was just to deny it and to act as if that's not really happening. You know, I have to fight a case and to be honest, I didn't have much fight left in me at that point. You know, I was drained. I was tired. Uh, three weeks before my arrest or maybe four, I almost took my own life. I was that depressed. I didn't think I could get sober. And, you know, my my depression is very severe. And I've had battles with, you know, suicide attempts, you know, my whole life. So now I have to fight for my freedom for a human I haven't even met before. I can't wrap my head around that right now. But something in me told me to fight anyway and to just pretend, act as if you're strong enough because you will be one day. Um, I wanted to be strong for her and eventually I was able to be, you know, but that took a lot of time. My first offer on the table was 20 years. And in Arkansas, they make you do a third of your time. But I'm a New Yorker. You tell me 20 years, that means almost 20 years. You do 80%, right? So I'm not signing that. Then they came back um, months later, six months later, and said, 10 years. And I said, oh, we're negotiating. No, <laughs> I'm not signing that either. But we're talking about it. Cool. Um, and I kind of just kept that fierceness and I refused to sign 20, refused to sign 10. 10 years means I'll never see my daughter. 10 years means I'll never get to raise her. So I couldn't do that, you know? Um, and finally, I'm seven months pregnant. They said five years. And I had never signed a piece of paper faster in my life because five years gives me a chance, you know, to get to know her. Um, I signed my plea. I went to prison. And I went into labor June 12th, 2012. And even in labor, I was in denial and I didn't want to tell the guards, you know, you, you don't talk to the guards very often. It's kind of an inmate code, right? So I was terrified to tell them I was in labor and I didn't even know what that meant. I never had a baby before. <laughs> so um, the other women were like, Jess, you're having a baby today. And my due date was a couple of weeks out. So I'm like, no, 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 it's not my due date yet. Thinking that somehow if it's not my due date, there's no baby. No, <laughs> but I just did not want to have a baby in prison so badly that I was trying to deny the intense pain that I was going through. Um, at about 4.30, I told the guards, finally, 4.30 in the morning, I'm in labor. They made me walk from the chow hall to the infirmary. 
if you've ever seen a prison hallway, there are long corridors. It takes time to get to the chow hall and every step was more painful than the last. No wheelchair, no assistance. I didn't have anyone's arm holding me there. It was just me. And prison doors have to be opened. You have to be cleared to open every door. So I kept stopping at these doors, waiting for them to see me and clear me to go to the infirmary. And I was standing there for what felt like forever before I was buzzed through to each door. It was excruciating. And I remember thinking, if I just get to the infirmary, then I'm going to be okay. It's going to be fine. You know, they're going to help me when I get there. Finally got to the infirmary door and they made me sit in a wheelchair and they made me wait for shift change at 7.30 before they would take me to the hospital. Now, that was the longest three hours of my life. I'm scared. All I can think is, I want my mom. I wish my mom was here. And I'm having a baby alone. I'm having my first baby alone in prison. Finally, the ambulance arrives around 8 o'clock. They take me, shackled, to the hospital. Uh, the nurses refused to look at me. They talked to the prison guards more than they talked to me. And I was chained while I was giving birth to my baby. And that, mm-hmm, that is dehumanizing. You know, I know I broke the law. I know I messed up, but I'm giving birth. And um, I'll never forget the imagery of holding my baby who's two minutes old and seeing the leg chains on my leg. And I just thought, how did you get here? How did you get here? This is not just about you. This is about an innocent baby and you better work your ass off to be a good mother to her. Um, once she was born two days later, she was taken out of my arms. I was very aggressively removed from that hospital room because I didn't want to leave. You know, I, just gave birth to the only person I've ever loved in my life. And I have to leave her here. She's going into foster care. I'm going back to prison. They grabbed me because I said no to them. I didn't want to leave. They slammed me down in a chair, shackled me up really quick and rushed me out and put me in a van and took me back to prison. I didn't know where my daughter was. They bring me back through Sallyport and I couldn't even speak. I was shell-shocked in a way that is so hard to describe. I don't remember fully what they were saying to me or what happened. I remember little flashes of of going back to the prison. Um, And they kept me in the infirmary for two weeks because I couldn't answer their questions. I didn't know what happened. Um, And I have later learned that that was PTSD. Mm. Crazy. And now they, they did, your, your child went into foster care. Was she able to be fostered by sort of a member of your family or somebody else? No. Nope. So my family's in New York and they didn't have the means to come down to Arkansas to visit, let alone fight a DHS case. So she went to foster care and it was six months before I saw her again. And um, her foster family is amazing. They're so kind and we talk to this day. But I remember sitting there meeting them the foster family, he is a police officer and she works at a college and they're such good people. And it was almost, you know, the irony of a police officer taking care of my child was a lot. Mm. Um, but I remember telling them in chambers, I had a 15 minute visit. I will do whatever it takes to be her mother. I will never stop fighting and, uh, whatever it takes, you know, whatever it takes to be there for Micah, that's her name. I will do that. And I'm very proud to say that when she was about two and a half years old, I was granted sole legal custody. And was she, she still in prison? I was still in prison when I saw her for the first time. 
Um, when I got out, I was paroled to a halfway house. She was, you know, a little over a year and a half or so. It took me an additional how, year to get how, custody. How long did you spend in prison from this? Well, you got there, you were in jail first, you made the plea deal, they gave you five years. You had to do a third of your five years. I had right? to do fifty percent of my of my uh, case. So some people get a third, some people do fifty percent. Since mine was a little bit more serious, I did fifty percent of my time. Okay, so and the rest on parole. So let's see. So you you went to prison. Two months later, you have your daughter. Then what? Two and a half years later, they let you out. I served a total of two and a half years. Two and a half years. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they let you out. And then at that two and a half year mark, you don't have your daughter is still in foster care, and they went ahead and gave you full custody while she was in foster care. It took me a year to get custody of her. So when I first got out, I went to a halfway house. I had to get a job and an apartment and a car, and I had to work all of these things. I had to do meetings. I had to do hair follicle drug testing, counseling, uh, child abuse testing scores. I mean, the list of things they wanted me to do was enormous. And they placed her four hours away from where I paroled to. So I would drive four hours. I didn't have a car at first. So I had to hustle to get a ride to even see her. Drive four hours. I would get her for two hours. And then I would drive home four hours. You know, it was a it was an enormous struggle. And I completely understand why some people just give up. The whole time I had caseworkers telling me, you're not doing enough. We're going to petition to terminate your rights. This isn't good enough. She's good where she is. She's been stable this whole time. And every step of the way, I told them, she is my flesh and blood. I will fight until I die to be her mother. And I was relentless in that. You know, I, I knew that she believed, I knew that she belonged with me, you know, this is mine, this is my baby and I'm going to do whatever it takes, you know? So it was over a year after my release that I got custody. Yeah. Custody. And that was because you, you basically checked off the list of everything you were required to do at a job, at a car, at an apartment, um, you know, financially stable. You had, uh, bought her clothes and all those things that you were checked off that you had to do. You did that. Now she's with you. Yeah, she she came home. And I remember thinking the day that I got full custody of her, I thought, now what do I do? <laughs> right? I mean, I've never been a mother before. So that was a journey in itself. I um, also had to learn how to be comfortable in my own skin. I had battled substance use disorder all my life. So that was a journey. Learning how to be a mother was a journey. And what kind of a mother I wanted to be. I had a lot of time to reflect on that in prison and then the year that I fought to get her. So, you know, um, the struggle, the struggle was hard, but it made me who I am. And I'm so grateful every single day just for my freedom and of course, to get to be Micah's mom, it's amazing. So, okay, so you got out after two and a half years. Now, were you on parole? How, how did that set up and how long did the parole last? Are you still on parole now? Tell me about it. Yeah, I was on parole the whole time. Um, I recently got off parole. I think it was a 2018, 2019. So I'm off parole. And now I just have a suspended sentence through the state of Arkansas. So I have to, you know not go back to Arkansas or commit another felony, which I will not do. Right. And where do you live now? I live in the suburbs of Chicago. So now 
what made you decide that you needed to clearly go to school? I think you probably thought that through and said, if I go to school, I can get a degree and then I can make more money for my child and take care of her. So was that part of what the scheme was to go to school? And why did you pick, you know, um, a profession that was uh, around um, prison reform? Well, I was a little mad at the conditions in which that I had to live and other women had to live in prison. And it kind of just lit. It, that spark had been lit in prison. You know, I, um, I saw a lot of women struggle and I thought to myself, the world does not know what women go through in prison. New York was a very different environment than Arkansas was. Arkansas made you do chain gang without the chain. And that was in the Arkansas heat. My hands would be cut up and bleeding on this chain gang. Women were denied feminine hygiene products. The water was brown. I mean, the, the conditions were just barbaric at times. I gave birth chained to a bed, you know, so I wanted to share my story. I know that I'm not the first woman to have gone through that. And I know I'm not the last. And I think the more um, the more stories we can get out, the more people will, that will come forward and share their story in prison, the more, you know, we're going to bring awareness to it. So in getting my bachelor's degree, I wanted to kind of distance myself from my past in a sense, you know, I, I was a drug dealer, but I'm not anymore. So it was kind of like the paperwork I've been studying psychology and prison reform all my life. So I wanted to make it official. And then I kind of just am an accidental YouTuber. I was volunteering to record little videos for a prison reentry class, the same prison that I went to in Arkansas. And I was fired from my volunteer job. And then I was like, wait, hold on. I have a lot more to say. <laughs> and that's kind of how YouTube took off. God, and then you got fired. Why? Because you were being too real in your, in your videos or what? No, uh, the, the teacher quit. And then the new teacher didn't like what I was saying. Maybe she thought I was too real or too blunt about the way that I was talking to the women. But, you know, we need that. We need examples of people getting out of prison and staying sober and being successful. Women need that. Women empower other women. So I was very upfront and honest about all of the struggles with foster care and with struggling with my mental health and substance use disorder and, you know, how every obstacle that was thrown my way, I was able to you know, kind of defeat and do better. Um, nothing was stopping me. And I, I think women in prison need to see that, you know, so I was, was a little honest about things and maybe my frustration transferred over in the videos. So then, okay. So now you, you moved to Illinois and you're outside of Chicago. And when did you go see, what made you think that you're not violating your parole or your, you're off parole now, so you're not violating anything by using cannabis to help you recover, are you? I'm not violating parole. I'm off parole. Um, but my mental health worsened over time. You know, I think in the beginning, I was so focused on getting my daughter, so focused on paying my bills and staying on the right track, staying away from bad people, not selling dope. I was so focused on that that still I was not treating my mental health. Over time, I couldn't white knuckle it anymore, you know, and why should I have to, right? So my insomnia was the first clue that something needed to change. And in the past, I would use breathing techniques and essential oils, and I would do everything I possibly could to go to sleep, melatonin, hot tea. I mean, the list of things I had to do to try to go to sleep was just crazy. And it became exhausting, you know, so I just decided... I need to see a doctor. 
And I knew, and I was very open and transparent with him that taking pills is such a trigger for me. Even having a prescription pill bottle on the counter is a trigger for me. And I didn't want to go that route. If there was another way, um, I wanted to explore that. And the idea of using cannabis in recovery was always there, but I couldn't do that on parole. And, you know, I was a little bit nervous to have that conversation with him just because of my past. Uh, And then when I realized that my nervousness comes from propaganda and complete blatant lies about cannabis, I kind of pushed that to the side and started smoking. And it makes me cry when I think about it, but the immediate stress reliever was insane. I got the best night's rest of my life day one, and it's just been helping me so much. I take CBD throughout the day for my anxiety, and then I smoke you know, at night to go to sleep. And it just is helping me get through. If you've never slept, like if you've never battled with insomnia and not gotten a good night's rest for five days, six days, like it's just too much. So I couldn't white knuckle it anymore. Now, what what do you do now? Do you actually work in programs where you do counseling for women in prison or what do you do? So I don't, I'm a full-time content creator for YouTube and TikTok and I have a podcast. So right now I do everything online. I interview different people. So I'm an influencer, I guess, but I don't really like that word. Um, And hopefully some other opportunity comes my way to actually get out and work with people. COVID kind of stopped everything that I had, you know, coming up, but I'm hoping to either work in prison or work in rehab or with veterans anywhere that'll take me is fine. So Um, making content is great. And I love what I do, love my followers and they're so kind and encouraging, but I really want to start working, you know, within my community and working with people. Yeah. And so now when you, the podcast that you're doing, do you, do you just address your story or what do you, what do you, what's your primary focus? So just crazy stories or bringing on different people that want to share their stories. Um, But we talk about everything from, you know, I've had cops on my podcast, so I'll talk with them and their experience, or we'll talk about prison or mental health or substance use disorder. You know, I'm really open to talking about all of the things that a lot of people don't want to talk about. I think that is what makes, you know, my brand so unique is that I put it all out there, all the dirty laundry, all the stuff. My life is not Instagram. My life is not perfect. And I share all of that, you know, every struggle I have, and I encourage my guests to do the same. I think that's going to do so much for people. You know, mental health is a huge battle. And if people feel less alone, I think we're really going to start to make a difference, you know? So it's not for everyone. It's definitely challenging. And now do you, is it easy for you to find cannabis in the Chicago area? Because you have a medical program in Illinois, right? Right. So I, I have a medical marijuana card, but we are completely recreational. So there's weed stores every three miles or so. So it's not hard to get. Got it. And um, would you recommend again, you, you said you're not telling it's for everybody, but would you recommend other people who have gone through your kind of situation um, and haven't found relief to at least go and talk to a doctor and see if a doctor can help them the same way they helped you? Absolutely. But I always say, go see a doctor and understand you, you know, marijuana can be a huge trigger to some people in recovery, you know, and you have to be self-aware enough to say, I just can't do that. I'm going to find another way, you know, and the underlying causes of substance use disorder are our mental health. A lot of people use to self-medicate. So if marijuana is going to be a trigger for you, 
please do not do that. Definitely see a doctor and be honest with yourself. You know, um, some people need ADHD medication or, you know, sleeping medication or things, you know, antidepressants. If that is your journey, go see a doctor and talk about it. Um, I definitely don't believe in cannabis for everyone, but it's what, it's what's working for me. And I will always share what's working for me. We're all different though. So definitely see a doctor first. So you're doing really well now. I understand you're you're recently engaged. Is that right? Yeah, I'm recently engaged. You have two children now? We have two, Micah and Riley. Micah and Riley, both girls? Two girls, yep. Two girls, good. And I mean, so uh, what do you think? What's next for you? I understand that uh, Hollywood's come knocking already, are they not? You know, some things are in the works right now. I'm working on a memoir, and hopefully I'll have a book out soon. Uh, Cannabis Talk 101 is interviewing me at G4 in Vegas at Mandalay Bay. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. And we'll just kind of see, you know, where it goes. Gotcha. Well, you know, I I know that, um, you know, you, through your own firsthand experience, have a lot to say about prison reform. What would be the number one thing that you think needs to happen right now when it comes to prison reform in America? I think before we start working in prison, we need to change our drug laws. And, you know, most people that I met in prison are not evil criminals that need to be taken out of society. Prison is important. It keeps dangerous people away from us, right? But it's also housing people that are broken. It's housing people that are mentally ill and struggling with substance use disorder and mental health. I was, I have met evil people that should not be released, but that is not the majority. So I think the first thing that needs to happen is that we need to end the war on drugs. We need to stop incarcerating more citizens per capita than any other nation in the world. And um, once we start housing 50% less people, because that's what the war on drugs has done, it has filled our prisons. Once we start incarcerating less people, we can reallocate those funds to help treat substance use disorder. You know, I mean, if you walk into a prison, everyone's trying to escape the, you know, the disgusting abuse and conditions of prison. And it's really sad. You know, I could have found drugs every single day I was in prison or alcohol, whatever I wanted, I could have gotten. That's a problem. We are not treating substance use disorder. And then we're labeling everyone that has a drug addiction as a felon. They can't get a job. They're ostracized from society. And it's just a huge problem. It's it's a generational problem. Uh, so prison reform is important, but ending the war on drugs should be our first step. You know, it must have been really difficult for you because I guess you just came out on the fact that you were a cannabis user, what, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of months ago? Um, it's been, a, it's actually been a couple of months now. A couple of months now. I mean, when you thought through coming out, I mean, how did that go in your brain? You were saying, <laughs> I think I'm going to go ahead and tell the truth. What? So that was actually a while in the making. I didn't want to get my cannabis card and then just be like, I smoke weed now. I wanted to know that this is the path for me. It's the path I'm going to stay on. And I was really nervous about it, honestly, because I have a brand of recovery. And even though there are many pathways to recovery, whether it's medically assisted treatment, abstinence, uh, medication, whatever it is, all paths are valid. But I was still really nervous because in the beginning of my YouTube career, I was abstinent. So when that changed, I didn't really know how to how to talk about it. And um, 
there's a fine line when you do what I do from, you know, sharing everything and being transparent and having a personal life and kind of keeping things to yourself. That line is razor thin sometimes, especially when you talk about the stuff I talk about. Um, so eventually I kind of just was like, you know what? I think I'm doing more harm than good by staying silent. I think that I'm being selfish because I was just so worried about the negativity that would come in that I didn't stop to think about how many people this would help, you know? And that is where my mind was changed. Once I realized that so many people, you know, are on cannabis, so many people feel as though they're not sober and they're ostracized from that community. So many people don't understand the every component to addiction and recovery. I just need to come out of the come out of the weed closet. I mean, and do you, do you feel like you just said some people think that they aren't sober because they're using cannabis, but if they've off the uh, the opioids, they are sober from opioids. So it's kind of like in the middle of the road, but you are sober in one sense and not and medicated in another sense. But there are a lot of people who are sober and medicated, right? Right, right. And the recovery community can be kind of toxic where people don't realize that they're putting you down by calling you not sober. Sometimes they think they're just trying to help you, you know, but they're not doctors. Um, so I have never... I don't attribute my recovery to a 12-step program. Well, I think it's great. I think that kind of toxicity hurts people when they're like, you have to be abstinent. It's like, well, okay, Linda, but my mental health is not good right now. So I need a doctor as well. You know, So I think that we need to kind of change how we view addiction. A lot of that just comes from stigma and not understanding you know, the full scope of it. Gotcha. Anything else you want to add? Um, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for being here, being a part of the show today. I'm telling you, I think you've you've definitely opened the eyes of a lot of our viewers. I think if you can just have an open heart and an open mind when discussing prison and substance use disorder, the world would change. You know, I think it's easy to not think about people in prison or not think about addicts because, you know, out of sight, out of mind, but we need to help our community. And that starts a lot of times with our homeless population or addicts or people in prison. So, you know, hopefully I can continue to change minds and just be as open and transparent as I can. Oh, thank you so much. And now if people wanted to find out more about you, where do they go? What, how do they get a link up to you? So everything is self-titled. My name is Jessica Kent. You can find me on YouTube and my TikTok is popping right now, which is really weird. Didn't mean for that to happen, but it's just Ken 12 on TikTok. And I guess you've got close to what, 800,000 followers on TikTok? Yes. TikTok is fast. Oh. That just blew up. Holy moly, girl. You've got, you got 440,000 on YouTube and 800,000 on TikTok. You have blown up and congratulations. And I, I wish you much success, especially on this road to lifetime recovery. Thank you. I'm unbelievably blessed and this has been a pleasure. So thank you again for having me. No, thank you so much. And you know, you always have a home here. If there's anything you're working on and you want to share with our, our viewers, make sure you come on back. We'd love to have you stay safe. Love those kids and take care of your husband to be and uh, make sure you all make sure you tune into the next edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Uh, 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 uh.